Well, having read our primary text for our sermon this evening, I won't have you turn to any passages right away, but I will have several for you to turn to throughout the course of our time this evening. As you can see from the bulletin, we are considering the eschatology of Eden. Maybe a brief explanation as to why you see this perhaps strange title before you. A few months back, I put out a request for you to let me know if there's any doctrine or topic in particular that you would like some sort of mini-series on. And of course, one of you, and you probably remember who you are, requested eschatology. And eschatology is a subject that we shouldn't stray away from or fear as as complex maybe as we may think it is, or as intimidating as we may find that word to be. Uh, I know it's an awkward word and a long word, uh, but hopefully by the end of this evening, uh, you'll notice that eschatology can be quite simple. Eschatology can be quite straightforward and a wonderful doctrine that we must begin to at least understand in some sense. So tonight we'll begin unpacking Uh, the term eschatology and some of the content of the doctrine. Let's first wrap our minds around this word and then we'll begin to look at the doctrine that this word has historically been used to identify. Eschatology, like most words that end in ology, can be broken down into two separate words. Of course, you know the second word, ology, uh, the study of, you can think of biology, or anthropology, or sociology, psychology, meteorology. You know all of these things. And you know that ology simply means the study of, or the doctrines of, these various topics. And so that leaves us with the word eschata to understand. And it's easy just to look up a word like eschata in a lexicon or a dictionary and to find the meaning of it. But sometimes it's helpful to see how it's used in a few places, especially in Scripture, so that we can see what kind of meaning Scripture attaches to this word. And so we find this word, eschaton, or eschaton, and its variations in the Greek language in passages like 1 Corinthians 15. And in this passage of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, if you want to look it up, we see that this word eschata refers to a person. Paul writes, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The last Adam in the Greek would sound like this. Ha eschatos Adam. Eschatos. The last Adam. So sometimes eschatol refers to a person, meaning a last or ultimate or climactic person. Of course, the word also appears in very ordinary usage as well. Jesus used it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 26, to refer to a thing. Jesus said, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Of course, Jesus was using this illustration of debt in one of his teachings. But the point is here that he refers to this last cent or this last penny. 
So sometimes this word is associated with simply last things, last people, last things. And of course, it can also refer to time. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 gives us that verse. But understand this, Paul writes, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Something that you may be familiar with, the phrase of tribulation. And so it can speak of last times or last days as well. But the main point for us today is to not try to confine it or to restrict it beyond Scripture's usage, but to understand that it has a wide range of meaning to refer to last in terms of order or last in terms of significance as an ultimate. And that's what we must understand then when we begin to think about eschatology. It's the study of last or ultimate things. Yes, it'll have to do with time and yes, it'll have to do with people, no doubt. Especially that one particular person, the last Adam. But we'll get there. And so eschatology, as we consider it, will seek to ask and answer questions like, where will all things ultimately end up, finally and at last? How will these things get there? Why will all things end up where they will finally be? And also, who is ultimately driving all things to this final end? And so that's the topic that we begin to embark on this evening, eschatology. But as you'll notice from the rest of the title there, we're considering the eschatology of Eden. And hopefully this creates something of tension in your minds that why, when we're talking about the ultimate things or the last things, are we reading from the beginning? The creation accounts. And more in particular, when God created the heavens and the earth and created man and placed him in the garden of Eden. Why go to the beginning to study the end? Well, to accurately know the ultimate end of something, you oftentimes need to know its beginning. For those of you who've been to Florida and have tried to see a space shuttle launch, you'll know that there's a lot that goes into the beginning of a shuttle launch. Of course, they know the destination, they know where they want the shuttle to end up, but to get to its end point, the engineers have to do a lot of calculations. They must do a lot of things and set the trajectory of the launch. They must make sure they have enough fuel. There are no refueling stations at 60,000 feet above a sea level. And so you can project or even traject the end of something by seeing its beginning, seeing the shuttle there at its perfect angle with the perfect amount of fuel to get it to its final destination. Much can be learned about the end by looking at what we find in the beginning. Well, orchestrating all the affairs of mankind for all time is a far more complex and involved operation than a, by comparison, simple space shuttle launch. And so this evening, as we look at the eschatology set forth in the beginning of the Bible, 
we'll see how it aligns with the end of the Bible as well, even as we read earlier from Revelation chapter 22. Well, let's begin then with this simple observation, having read Genesis 2 and Revelation 22. The simple observation is this, that the Bible's beginning is consistent with its ending. The Bible's beginning is consistent with its ending. And I hope you picked up on the imagery that was seen in both of our scripture readings. The imagery that surfaced in both of our readings was simply this. It was a place with trees and a place with Flowing water or rivers. Rivers and trees would be the two main symbols that appeared in our readings. Or simply put, we have the usage of garden imagery in the beginning and in the end. In fact, we have what's called an inclusio with this imagery. Now, some of you are familiar with the term inclusio. Inclusio simply means bookends. Or it's a way to section off text to tell you that this chunk of text goes together. It holds together from this bookend to that bookend. And everything in between concerns the major truth that we see in these two bookends. You can see this on a smaller scale in a book like the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew begins his Gospel there in chapter 1 talking about Emmanuel who is God with us. And then at the end of his gospel there in Matthew chapter 28, we see that Matthew's ending his gospel with the Great Commission, with Jesus' promise that I will be with you until the end of the age. And so we have this Emmanuel inclusio in Matthew's gospel. This book is to be taken together as a single and solid chunk Well, the Old Testament in the Hebrew canon has an inclusio. In fact, the first book of the Old Testament is Genesis, as we read it. And as I was reminded recently, as a friendly neighbor brought to me an an Old Testament of the Jewish scriptures, uh, in the order of the Hebrew canon, this Bible ends with the book of Chronicles. And so you have an inclusio of genealogies in Genesis and then genealogies in the book of Chronicles. Once again, the biblical author's stylistic technique to tell us this chunk of text goes together. This is a solid unit that has continuity. Well, we should see then as we even zoom out further, we see Genesis and Revelation the two bookends of the entirety of the Bible with this inclusio of garden imagery telling us that this book goes together. We don't have two separate books. We don't have an Old Testament and a New Testament. We don't have 66 separate books that we should read separated and divorced from one another. But we have one solid unified book with one continuous storyline From the Garden of Eden in Genesis to the Garden Paradise of God in Revelation. And so that's the first thing that we must recognize. And this simple observation has immense implications for the rest of eschatology. 
that there is a consistency in the end with what we see here in the beginning. Yes, we're going to see in Revelation 21 here in just a moment that Jesus is making all things new. And yes, the old has passed away. But even that statement has to come under this first and simple observation that the beginning is consistent with the end. That when Jesus makes all things new, he's not hitting a reset button to erase everything that's come before. Everything must be read in its context. And this first observation provides us the biggest context. One continuous storyline in God's one continuous plan that he's bringing to consummation from its beginning to its end with great consistency. And so that's the first observation, this inclusio of imagery. Let's begin to understand what the imagery of Eden, then, is really pointing us to. And the first thing that we can see that it's pointing us to is simply this. It is God's dwelling place with man. If you have your Bibles on your laps, please turn with me to Genesis 2. You want to see some of the development of this theme The garden is the place of God's making. It is the place that he owns. And it is the place to which he places man there in verse 15. As the Lord God took the man of Genesis 2.15 and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. In other words, the garden is God's garden and man is to steward it. And it's a place where God would come and walk in his special presence. And you see that if you look to chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard, this is Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Of course, sentences like this are packed full of theology, but one thing that we can deduce from this verse is that, yes, we know that God is omnipresent, but there's a sense in which God is present in a way that sinful men and women want to hide from him. That there is a special concentration of God's presence to which they try to hide from. And so we see simply... Here that the garden which God walked, the garden in which God had made and intended to walk with man and women and woman. This garden was the place of his special and near presence. I think Gerhardus Voss perhaps gives us the most nuanced and precise way to understand the garden based off of what we've read in Genesis 2 and this implication of God's presence in Genesis 3. Gerhardus Voss says this, that the garden is the garden of God. And he's taking that phrase from Ezekiel 28, verse 13. Uh, Eden is called the garden of God there uh, by the prophet Ezekiel. Not only there, uh, but many places in uh, Ezekiel. 
But Voss says this, the garden is the garden of God, not in the first instance, an abode for man as such. So not simply a dwelling place for man, but specifically a place of reception of man into fellowship with God in God's own dwelling place. And so when we read about the Garden of Eden and we receive all this imagery of the Garden of Eden, we must categorize it correctly. That it is God's own dwelling place. It is a place that He created and that He supplies and that He places man there as a steward to take care of it. It is also a place then where man is put to be in fellowship with God Himself. That the garden was not simply uh, a place where God would watch from afar Adam and Eve be fruitful and multiply. Adam and Eve work and keep the garden and exercise their dominion over it. But it was first and foremost a place where they would dwell with God. place of reception of man into fellowship with God in God's own dwelling place. And so that's what we must see in Genesis 2, that man is permitted to dwell with God in his garden, the garden that he cultivates, the garden that he waters, and man gets the blessing of dwelling with God in God's garden. And wouldn't you know it, that is the same reality we find getting the emphasis in Revelation. We read earlier from Revelation 22, the first five verses, and I won't read, reread those for you. But I do want to point your attention specifically at verses 3 and 4. It's in verse 3 that we see that God is back in the midst of his people. And rather than his people hiding from him, hiding from his near and special presence, there in verse 3 we see that his people are worshiping him. His servants will worship him as the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. In this paradise garden setting. And verse 4 also tells us then that these people of his will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. In other words, there is face-to-face fellowship with God here in this garden. There is this unceasing light of God shining upon his people, as verse 5 goes on to speak about. And if you begin to weave this all together, hopefully you're beginning to see certain aspects even of the Aaronic benediction, the one you'll hear later this evening, where the light of God's face is said to shine upon his people, to bring his people peace. And of course, the result of God's name being placed upon his people, um, or that is the result of the benediction of God's face shining Upon his people is that his name is placed upon them. Numbers 6, 27 tells us. And so the picture that we see here is the picture that was the original picture of Eden. Of man dwelling with God. 
in his special and near presence. And of course, that promise then set forth in the Aaronic benediction there in Numbers chapter 6. And of course, it coming to its full and final fulfillment here where the worshipers of God are surrounding God in the midst of this garden. And they see his face. And his name is upon their foreheads. He has placed his name upon them once and for all. It's a picture of a fellowship and familial love. In fact, the familial love, if you were to back up to Revelation 21, you would see this love emerge. Verses 1 through 7 of Revelation 21. And this is continuing to speak Of this same theme of God dwelling with man. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. You can think of this as the new Eden. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. To summarize Revelation 21, 1 through 7, we could say this. That what is made new by Jesus Christ is the relationship bond between God and man. So that God and man can once again dwell together in a state of fellowship and familial love. Dwelling together again as a father and a son. And so the Garden of Eden as we see it in creation back in Genesis has the same purpose as the eschatological Eden that we see depicted here in Revelation That the garden of God is the place where God dwells with man. Where man is received once again into face-to-face fellowship with his creator. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. That is the eschatology of Eden. And here's what we need to realize then before moving on. That this dwelling of God and man was the intent of the original creation. It is the ultimate intent of new creation or of eschatological creation, that renewed creation that Jesus is bringing about. And if you've ever wondered why then salvation and redemption is more than just salvation from sin, salvation from guilt, salvation from condemnation, salvation from The burning fires of hell. It's because of this. That salvation is calibrated by eschatology. That salvation is never simply having to do with man. And man's benefits of 
dealing with personal sin. But ultimately, salvation is to restore man to fellowship with God. To again dwell with God in a loving personal communion bond with him. In fact, Christ, when he told his disciples that he was going to die and depart from them, he assured them with this very aspect of the salvation that he was working with this salvation that is geared towards this eschatological end of God dwelling with man. John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus said to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You see then that Christ assured his disciples that like a bride to, about to be wed, and that's the language here, that he was going to go to prepare a place in his father's house as a bridegroom would go and prepare a room for his soon coming bride. Jesus would go and prepare a place in his father's house and then return to take the disciples to himself, to be united to him by faith. As he said, believe in me. He would take his disciples to himself, united to him by faith. In order that they could covenantally cohabitate with him, to dwell together with him as a wife with her husband. Almost any place that you look in Scripture and you begin to analyze the salvation that Christ is offering and the comfort that Christ is offering because of the salvation that he brings as the Savior, you're going to quickly find that it's always calibrated by or attached to in some way, shape, or form this eschatological end of dwelling with God. Dwelling with God by Christ. And honestly, that is the case even from the beginning. And I do want you to turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Because as we've considered the garden in general, and then the overarching principle that the garden is God's dwelling place with man, there's a sense in which this dwelling place was always to be secured by Jesus Christ. It's here that I want to focus on the trees of the garden. In fact, the trees carry much of the Edenic imagery for us in the inclusios that we've considered already. So let's look at the trees quickly in the time that we have left. There are two trees that Moses introduces for us in Genesis 2, verse 9. Moses tells us that out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there are two trees that are different from the rest of the trees that the Lord has caused to sprout up. 
the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we're told that these trees are in the midst of the garden. In fact, both trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge, get this description. The tree of life here in 2.9, and then later, at least from Eve's lips, we hear that the tree of knowledge is also in the midst of the garden. It is possible then that these trees are actually side by side. We can't know for sure. But both receive this same description of being in the midst of the garden. One promising life. And of course, as God told Adam, the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, producing death if partaken of. And so life and death being the two trees set in the midst of the garden. Well, we know what happens from the unfolding events that Adam ends up partaking of the tree which produces death in him and all his posterity. And so we don't get to learn fully what the tree of life entails in the garden, at least not in these opening chapters. However, we do see in Genesis chapter 3... A little bit more information about the tree of life. Even here as God had originally placed it in the midst of the garden. We see it in verse 22 of chapter 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand... And take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then the statement isn't quite finished as your translations probably indicate there. And then verse 23 then tells us what God does in light of this reality. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man there in verse 24. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what do we make of this tree of life then as we find it here in Eden? Well, we see that Adam was originally a living being. God had breathed into him as he formed him from the dust. He breathed into his very nostrils the breath of life. And so in a very real sense, Adam was already living. And this life that Adam was already living was good. It was very good as it was without sin. But we see that Adam also had the potential to die. Adam also had that probationary period in which he was told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest he die. And so death hovered over his head, even in that original state and being of life. And so the tree of life then begins to symbolize something more than what Adam originally had at the original creation. The tree of life symbolizes an advancement in the life that Adam originally had. 
Once again, I think Gerhardus Voss is helpful here when he says this about the tree of life. That the principle of life in its highest potency is sacramentally symbolized by the tree of life. So life in its highest potency. Life in which death can never touch it. Life that is immutable, unchangeable. Life that is confirmed and complete, never to fail or to falter. Voss goes on to say the tree was associated with the higher, the unchangeable, the eternal life to be secured by obedience throughout his, that is Adam's, probation. In other words, the tree of life sacramentally or symbolically signified the higher, the unchangeable, the eternal life that Adam was to obtain by obeying God and not eating from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By overcoming the schemes of Satan, by overcoming the wiles of the devil and becoming victorious and then laying hold of the tree of life in order to live forever and never die. To have confirmed life in the dwelling place of God. From what we learn from the New Testament then, we could say that the tree of life in the Garden of Eden is Christ himself. As the tree of life symbolizes eternal life, We know that eternal life is found only in God himself. In fact, Jesus teaches this to us in John chapter 17, where he says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Life in the ultimate sense consists in partaking of Christ, the eternal word, the fountain of life. Calvin, of course, saw this same thing in the tree of life when he says that the tree of life was a figure of Christ inasmuch as he is God's eternal word. Indeed, it could not really be a symbol of life except by figuratively representing him. And so, it was the tree of life that was to be partaken of sacramentally by Adam in order to be confirmed in eternal life forever, that death would never lay any claim to him, that sin would never befall him. But as you and I know, and as we've already said, Adam failed. Adam did not overcome the wiles of the devil or the schemes of Satan. He did not obtain the victory that was set before him for himself or his posterity. And so it would have been wrong for him then to sacramentally partake of the tree of life after entering into death. And so the Lord drove him out of Eden and guarded the way to the tree of life. But that's where we must understand the book of Revelation as that tree of life appears to us once again in this Edenic imagery. And it appears to us not only in Revelation 22, as we read it earlier, But there's a build-up to the tree of life, even there. And it comes as early as Revelation 2. And keep in mind, then, the failure of Adam 
the one who did not overcome and who was barred access, who was not given the right to the tree of life. Revelation 2, 7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will grant the right to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. And then, of course, Revelation 22, now verses 14 through 15. The very last chapter. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The book of Revelation teaches us that there is one who has come And who has been given the right to the tree of life. And that of course is the Lord Jesus Christ. As the last Adam, he is the one who has gained access once again to the tree of life. But here's the thing about the last Adam. The last Adam also is the tree of life. So it's no wonder then that Jesus Christ is the one who takes us to himself. As he overcomes for us and he unites us to himself in his victory over Satan, as he is the overcomer, we in union with him also have the right to the tree of life. Those who wash their robes, Revelation 22 says, also have the right to the tree of life. And So the eschatology of Eden is one in which the tree of life is set before us. And it was a tree that Adam and all his posterity were driven away from because of sin. But it's the same tree then that we are brought back to in Revelation. And it's a tree that we are given a right to partake of because of Christ's work, the last Adam, in overcoming Satan, but then also providing his blood shed for us that we may cleanse ourselves and have the right to that same tree. I realize that many of you in hearing eschatology may not have come this evening with that expectation that you would hear simply a message about the tree of life and partaking of Christ. But that is the starting point of eschatology. It is the end point of eschatology. And everything else in eschatology is really subordinate, a subset playing a supplemental and supportive role towards this great reality that God chooses to dwell with us, And that he has provided everything to secure that dwelling, even his own son. So eschatology is not simply a doctrine that we can study and say cool or neat as we find out what God is up to and bringing all things to his consummative plan. But it's a doctrine that really ought to drive us to a deeper appreciation of what God is doing in saving us and restoring us to himself. It's a doctrine then that is my prayer that will stir us up to doxology, to worship, even as we see that that is our great eschatological end. 
that God and his throne and the Lamb will be in our midst, and that we, his servants, will be worshiping him as we are radiant with his name placed upon us, and as he is our unceasing light and provider of life. And so that is the eschatology set forth for us in the beginning pages of Scripture, as well as the end. And it's the wonderful blessing then that will continue to flush out as we flush out the eschatology that the Scriptures teach. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that all of your doctrines find their climax and culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the tree of life, in the one who will never wither or fade away, but the one who will bear fruit every month in all eternity. So thank you for Christ. Thank you for a trustworthy Savior and Redeemer. And thank you for the communion that you restore us to in him and that you unite us to him by faith not only to be saved from our sins and the consequence of our sins, but to be saved unto fellowship with you. And so, Lord, we thank you for the work that you are doing, the work that you are bringing to its full and final end, in which we will partake of the tree of life and be confirmed into perfection forever. No more tears, no more death, no more sin, no more sickness, but an everlasting life worshiping you, free from the taint of sin. Lord, we thank you for that hope that is set before us. We thank you for that great end to which you are driving all things. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to worship you in light of who you are and what you are doing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.